Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Unconventional Soldier. A military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you once again for downloading another episode from the Unconventional Soldier, the podcast series, which aims to record the history of the British Army's STA patrols unit through the voices of veterans who served in its ranks. Today we're talking to Sammy Nichols about the underground Mexi shelter and patrol equipment. We will cover site selection, general deployment positions in the event of World War III breaking out, the construction of the shelter, how we hid something on the ground the size of a, a very large van and covert observation posts, what it was like to live and operate in the Mexi and the dangers involved, communications between the OP and the Mexi, and communications between the Mexi and the command post, which may be some distance away, and finally, what equipment patrol soldiers had, how they carried the exfil, the exfiltration back to their own lines, and as always, finally, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, where Sammy will, will give us the choice of a book, a film, and a luxury item he would take to a desert island. So as normal, we're going to start with our guest military biography, leading up to when they volunteered for the selection course. So Sammy, tell us a bit about yourself, and I think we should start off with, I've known you 30 years, why Sammy and not your Stephen, as your mum called you? <laughs> okay, well, I'll explain that. I'll explain that later on. Firstly, I, I left school at 16. Qualifications back then were O-levels, I think they're GCSEs now, or whatever they call them. And back then in the day, when you were 16, you could actually leave school without taking any exams. So I decided to leave, and the only uh, O-level that I walked away with back then was in school dinners. <laughs> During... During my teenage years, I had a Saturday job, as many lads did, my sort of age group, and that was at a local butcher's shop. And to be honest, that's all I ever wanted to do when I left school. So I left at 16, I started work as a butcher at a local co-op. Apparently, it's all at a co-op, Fergie. And, um, <laughs> and by the time I was 19... I'd been promoted to butchery manager of the largest co-op in Bolton. I've been looped into the prospect of further promotion. The next highest position within the co-op as a butcher was the butchery area manager's job. And that was currently fulfilled by someone in his late 50s, my age now, who drove about in a clapped-out company classic mini. I didn't fancy doing the same job for the next 30 years or so, so I then decided I needed something else. Three of my... Four brothers had been in the local TA regiment. So I joined um, the TA. Uh, Two of my brothers were still in at the time. And it just so happened to be a Royal Artillery battery. In fact, it was an air defence battery. And it was whilst I was in the TA that joining the regulars appealed far 
more and more, and it led to me joining in 1980. So the, the regiment I was posted to and what train I did, I remember going for my medical and sitting all of the entry tests at, at Sutton Coalfield, which I think everybody did back then. I was back in 1979. The recruiter said I'd done really well and I was eligible for any corps in the army and I could even be an aircraft technician. <laughs> he asked me what corps and trade I'd like to join and much to his dismay, I was adamant and insisted on joining the gunners. This was mainly due to my experience in the TA, which was a gunner battery, as I said before, and the fact that one of my older brothers was also in the gunners, in the regulars, and he said it was a good crack. So I was insistent on joining an air defence regiment, having been a blowpipe surface-to-air missile operator. So I was delighted when I found out I was posted to 3-2 Guided Weapons Regiment, which consisted of an air defence battery. But for some strange reason, I ended up in an anti-tank battery in the MT department, the motor transport department. <laughs> uh, so it's funny. Good army logic, sir. Yeah, so it's uh, funny how some things work out. And actually, it was when I first joined Free 2 Regiment that my name changed, as you said at the start of this podcast, from Steve or Stephen when I was in trouble to Sammy. And that happened. I arrived at the regiment. I was told to turn up for a Monday morning. I arrived early on a Sunday due to the travel involved. And when I got to the guard room, the admin hasn't changed, I don't think. Nobody was expecting me. The duty battery was 7-4 battery. And they said, don't worry, we'll sort you out in the morning, son, and we'll we'll put you up in the accommodation in 7-4 battery. So I think one of the, the guard commander took me across. There was a bed, and I thought it was, this was a bit funny at the time, but there was a bed there, empty, but it had been all made up as though it was somebody's bed. It obviously wasn't a spare bed. And he said, get your head down in there, mate. The guy who, who normally sleeps there is on the course. He's not back for another couple of weeks and we'll square you away in the morning. I then got suddenly woke up at about five in the morning with a good old-fashioned slap. And the biggest guy I'd ever seen, who went by the nickname of Beaker off the Muppet Show, was hovering over me. He woke up the entire 16 men rooms, I think they were back then. He woke up everybody in room and shouted, F me, there's an eyebrow on my pillow. And back in the day, as you probably know, Fergie, I had a mono brow. And uh, <laughs> basically he then said, I know who you are. You are Sam the Great American Bald Eagle, which for those listeners of that age, he was the news broadcaster on The Muppet Show with a massive mono brow. So that's how I aimed, or I got called the name Sammy, and it's stuck ever since. Actually, it was only a few years ago I, I, got, I received a letter from a solicitor who, who was representing um, an old friend of mine who was, who was on the court-martial, and I was being called forward as a witness, and a letter actually arrived at my house with Sam Eagle as the name on the envelope. So some people to this day don't even know I'm called Stephen or Steve. So there you go. I then moved on uh, once in 3-2 Regiment, as I said, my first job was in the multi-transport department. I then moved on from job to job over quite a short period of time, actually. So my next job was a driver of a combat vehicle reconnaissance track, CBRT, for a swingfire anti-tank, which was a swingfire anti-tank platform. I even did a stint as CO's driver and then... After crashing his car shortly after, I was swiftly moved on to be a signaller in the Ace Mobile Force Land, which was a NATO organisation, and I was employed in the Force Artillery Headquarters as a rebroadcast deck commander. So quite a few very different jobs, and all of them was their choice, i.e. the chain of command, and none of them was my choice, choice, but uh, back in the day, you just... Did as you was told. Go I've got a question for you, actually, looking back at 3-2 Guided Weapons, because I remember when I first joined, it, it was um, a weird organisation or a, a capability for the gunners, because actually it was a direct fire weapon. Yeah. And it, more, it belonged more to armoured corps, tank corps, something like that, rather than gunners. Why, why did the gunners have that capability? Absolutely agree, and I'm not sure why, but it moved from... It was back and forth between the armoured corps and the gunners. And I think after 3-2 disbanded, it actually 
went back to the Armoured Corps. So I think it started with the Armoured Corps. It went across to the Gunners and then went back to the Armoured Corps later on down the line. So no idea why. Yeah, it, it, it seems a strange, you know, Gunners are used the indirect systems, but to have a direct fire system on the front line, it seems a strange one. Yeah, yeah, very, very strange. Very strange. Yeah. So how did you find out what? about the Special P troop then, Sammy? It, it was just a friend of mine, really. So basically, an X7 paramate of mine was in the a small bar force with me at the time. I just remember him mentioning something that was on regimental part one orders, asking for volunteers. And as I said earlier, all the jobs I'd done so far, albeit I hadn't been in the regiment very long, weren't my choice. I was just told to do those jobs. So I looked into it more and I actually found the DCI. I can't remember what they stand for now. Defence something. Council instruction. instruction. And that gave out not too much information, but it, it did give out a little bit, little bit more information. So um, I looked that up. My mate had already told me that he had volunteered and it sounded just right down my street. So I decided to apply. I then got called into the troop commander's office. He was an X7 para officer. No names, no pack drill. But me, he, he actually made me more determined to do well on selection by saying I wouldn't have a cat in hours chance of passing. To be honest, for some reason or other, I don't think he liked me, Fergie. So, oh, surprise. Yeah, so I was out to prove him wrong. <laughs> that said, the RSM at the time was very onside, and, and when he found out I'd volunteered, he actually invited me to attend an annual camp that he was running for the Warrant Officers and Sergeants Mess. So it was Senior NCO's annual camp. It was focused on infantry skills. I was only a Lance Bombardier at the time. It was a bit nerve-wracking to be to be put amongst all the seniors in the regiment. But this was great, and it helped me massively to prepare for so selection. What month, did you, what, what month and year did you get into the trip then? It was February 83, I believe. But um, all those who had volunteered from 3-2 Regiment, went across. In fact, I think at that time, 3-2 were, were due to go into uh, suspended animation. And I think there was probably six or seven from 3-2 who had applied to attend Course 3, which was in 1983. But, we, but it was with the caveat that if we passed the initial selection, which I think was, was it a week or 10 days of this initial week if we passed we'd have to return to free two because the co wasn't willing to lose all of his manpower before they went into formal suspension so it was with a caveat that if we passed that'd be great but we wouldn't be allowed to go back to five regiments as it was time until 1984 it was quite quite funny really because I passed the initial selection for course three, told by, I think it was either Rocky or Geordie, that I would have to go back to 3-2 and come back for course four continuation training. And there'd be no need to do the initial selection week again. Guess what? They lied. When I went back in 1984 for course four, Geordie Watson laughed his head off. And, and you can probably all relate back to Geordie's laugh and said, you're doing selection again. All words to that effect, which I can't use on this podcast. <laughs> so in the uh, in the last podcast, Ian discussed with us about course one, uh, the initial hasty options or surface OPs, then subsurface OPs. But then obviously course two and three and onwards, there was the introduction of the underground Mexi shelters that uh, the stayed behind role with the special observers would occupy in the deployments of um, in the GDP. So tell me a little bit about your involvement in that, the selection process, and also, you know, the construction and the day-to-day living inside of Mexi. Okay, yeah, sure. Well, the GDP deployment areas weren't, weren't actually selected by us. They were selected high up in the chain of command, and they were selected based on where the intelligence corps or intelligence units predicted that the Warcraft Pike would deploy their divisional artillery assets. So once given the general deployment area, the site of the MEXI and the forward OP locations was generally down to the patrol commander, and he selected them by conducting plug target wreckies and, and doing uh, and wrecking a general area. I will say actually that the number of forward OPs that you provided was dependent on the target area. 
So some yeah. target areas you were given, and, and you was able to cover them by just one forward OP. Yeah. But but uh, if it was a vast area, then you may have had to deploy, you know, two two forward OPs. So it really depended. Uh, the patrol commander would make that call on whether it was one or two, because his objective was to observe the target area. It's a lot of responsibility on a, a sergeant. Yeah, very, think about it. Very much so. I, I, yeah. you, you've been told to watch a particular valley. You have to go out there. You have to sight the OPs, sight the Mexis in a way that you're going to have a great deal, you know, for survivability and be able to bring in strike if necessary. Yeah. Or just send the information. But a hell of a, hell of a, hell of a responsibility for, you know, yeah. a six man patrol. Massive. Uh, and I think uh, I'll listen to your earlier podcast and I think it was Fogie who mentioned that special observers have been qualified for the IAPA pays of um, yeah. rate of pays and um, I think actually as Fergie said it was really down to that because the, the sergeants the patrol commanders had so much responsibility your normal say normal I don't mean it derogatorily but um, you know the food parties were commanded by an officer so so that went some way to to gaining that extra pay so the the main site selection for the forward LPs was to was basically the ability to see the target area as I've mentioned. So the patrol commander would decide whether it be one or two forward LPs. We never tended to choose the obvious LP sites, and it's always worth looking back at it from the target area if possible. Not always possible, but if you look back and you put yourself in the enemy's shoes and you suddenly uh, were subject to artillery fire, then you'd be looking for, you know, potential OP locations to take them out. Yeah. And um, so we yeah, always... So the, be- the best OP site might not necessarily be the site you put in because it'd be too obvious to yeah, the enemy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and you've got to take that into account. So it's worth looking back. That's obvious. That's obvious. That area over there isn't that obvious, but we could still see the target area. And then you'd focus in that general area. And we never used to um, choose forward LPs on the forward edge of the wood because, again, it's obvious. Um, So we'd always try and go into the wood and and select positions, but you could still hopefully see the target area, but you're not sort of standing out or or, um, on the forward edge of the wood line. So once you've selected these positions and uh, you've, you've done all that background work, and you're essentially then ready to dig in. Can you just give listeners some of the an idea about some of the challenges and the size of the mixing and the problems you face getting all this digging done? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I'll just say a little bit about the Mexi site first. The Mexi site, we, we generally find the thickest, deepest, most inaccessible place that we could. And that was generally well deep into into a wooded area or forest. That said, we, we had to consider the routes in and out from the Mexi site, bearing in mind we had Land Rovers, in the early days, we just had one Land Rover per patrol and a trailer. But later on, we moved to two Land Rovers with one trailer and one mechanical digger on the back. So that was a massive constraint. You know, in a nutshell, we, we used to try and locate the Mexi well off the beaten track, even if it meant making our own tracks, which we concealed later on. So, yeah, they were pretty damn big, uh, the Mexi shelters. I think you described it as being the size of a large van, uh, which it was. And we soon learned to become expert landscape gardeners, that's for sure. (laughs) So I'll start off by covering the patrol vehicles in the early days. So as I've just touched on, before we got the diggers, we used to dig these in by hand, totally by hand with just shovels. So in the very early days, each patrol would have one Land Rover. I think they were the old Series 3 type. I can't remember. And you'd have the full patrol in that Land Rover. So you'd have the driving commander in the front. You'd have the four guys uh, in the back, which doesn't sound too bad. But when you then start thinking about six Bergens, six belt orders, all the optics and everything else, it was pretty damn crammed. Uh, that's for sure. In the trailer, we used to have the Mexi shelter it's, itself, which for uh, the listeners is basically a massive Meccano set is how I best describe it. And it consisted of steel uprights, which were about one and a half inch square, two inch square, arches, and what we called spacers, which were about a metre wide. So it was a big Meccano kit, 
And once you wired it all together, that formed the skeleton of the actual Mexi shelter. So that took up quite a proportion of the trailer. In addition, you then had the FRM, Fabric Reinforced Material, I think uh, Ian described it as uh, in, his, in the last podcast. They were heavy. I can't remember exactly how many rolls of that stuff that we had, but it, it certainly used to cut into your fingers if you didn't have your gloves on. We'd have about, uh, I think it was about four rolls of them and they weighed a ton the hatch itself and there was various types of hatch which i'll explain later a ladder for getting in and out of the mexi shelter once it was in water jerry cans i think we used to have about six water jerry cans in there we also used to use a jerry can for peeing in once we was in the mexi and and <laughs> you don't want to get the two mixed up that's for sure so um <laughs> so we we used to paint that a different color and we used to to have some um, paint that we could feel can't remember the name textured paint so if you actually felt for the container in the dark you could tell it wasn't the water container so uh, that was quite important and and then we'd have... and after ten days, unscrewing oh. the cap was always a delight. Oh. oh god, I can smell it now. Um, yeah, um, and then on top of all of that, we'd have um, the rations, three weeks worth of rations for six guys. So you can imagine the the sort of amount of equipment going into this trailer. Lots and lots of shovels. I've never seen so many shovels, and the different types of shovels. And actually, it reminds me of uh, another little funny dit. We was doing a stores inventory. I think it was when we we were forming up as a battery. There was me and um, I won't say his name, but there was another guy with me. And we was trying to tick off all these shovels. And there was like shovels, general service, and there was a part number for it. And we managed to track them down. Shovel post office trenching, which we used to use. Shovel sandbag filling. And I've never seen so many or heard of so many different types of shovels. Anyway, we got to the last inventory item. It was probably local purchased. Um, So it didn't have a part number. And all what was in the inventory was shovel BFO, Bravo Foxtrot. Oscar. I was looking all around for these two. And uh, I will tell you his name. It was Deb, actually. And Deb didn't mean to say to say this, but he looked at the far corner of the store and he said, it's probably those two big F off ones over in the corner. And we just looked at each other and burst out laughing because he, he didn't really put two and two together. Uh, lots of shovels, lots of other gardening equipment, pitchforks, picks, crowbars. We had mechanical, some mechanical sort of plant as well. I don't know if you can remember them. The um, petrol-powered auger, which looked like yeah, a Yeah, I remember pack. the auger. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For part of the wreck, you need to test if you could actually dig it down. That's yeah. it, yeah. So so we had one yeah. of them in, in the back of the trailer. We also had um, a whacker, another petrol sort of small plant equipment for, for breaking into rocks. Yeah, saws, axes, wheelbarrows, stretchers, gas cooker, gas bottles, MBC filtration unit, batteries, and all sorts of other stuff. So, as you can imagine, um, it was massively overweight. This is one Land Rover with six guys, a three-quarter ton trailer just cram-packed with stuff, and they certainly weren't easy to drive, um, and, and they were really easy to bog in. I remember Dev, again, who was my patrol commander at, uh, <laughs> at the time and we'd taken the wrong turning and i just remember him shouting out don't you dare drive into that field and if you get bogged in i'm gonna give you a slap i did and he did <laughs> 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 so that's the end of that uh there was also cases of the trailer flipping over occasionally on the long drives to these excise areas and i think in one instance one totally flipped over was sliding along on its canopy cover with a ladder underneath, like a giant sledge. Yeah, so weren't easy to drive at all. Later on, we we then acquired some small mechanical diggers, which I, I think have been previously mentioned. And yeah. it's at that point we sort of ended up with two Land Rovers then per patrol. So one with the trailer, three guys in each Land Rover, and the digger on the back of the second Land Rover. And that was far safer uh, and actually a lot easier. I think it's worth mentioning. I think it's worth mentioning as well. Not only you have to get all this kit onto the vehicles and get them out of the deployment area, but we only had on. Um, in theory, a couple of days to get everything put in place, yeah. camouflaged up, 
ready for uh, hostilities. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And one of the biggest challenges was finding the most inaccessible site. But bearing in mind, you had two Land Rovers to try and get in, one with a trailer on the back, one with a digger on the back. Uh, we used to basically crash through and make our own tracks once we'd selected a site for the yep. maxi. We'd crash through, taking care to to remove what was in our way and then re-coming those tracks back up while whilst we was digging in. So yeah, quite quite a lot quite a lot of work went into it. Once oh, once you actually massive. got to the site, it, it was like a mini building site, to be honest. You had to have an area for your stores. We used to totally unload everything from the trailer and have a stores area, and that was your admin area as well for brewing up and, 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 and getting some food on. Because, of course, every situation was different, but I, I've been on some Mexi deployments where we've actually used the empty trailer to transport the spoil, the amount yeah. of spoil that we've dug out. I mean... Different tons, 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 tons of it. And I, and again, I think I think we mentioned it when I was speaking to Ian. Uh, one of the big challenges then was when you get when you get rid of the spore, you have to go and camouflage the spoil up as well. Yeah, it, it, because it was a big pile of earth somewhere. It gives away the game again. Exactly. Everything was about concealment. Yeah, uh, and every site was different. To be honest, you know, some I, I I've been to sites and found a, a natural dip or a natural hollow, and that's generally not a bad site because you can actually use the spoil to to make that surface. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. afterwards and and so you you hide in the majority of the spoil at, at the actual site but the preparation of the area was really important and it, it meant carefully removing any plantation topsoil and all sort of all that sort of stuff that you'd reuse afterwards as long as it didn't die on you same principles of digging in a trench really wasn't yeah it was absolutely and we used to use um sandbags empty sandbags to wrap around all the nearby trees because the spoil would yeah, would, yeah. would leave you know you 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 leaving uh, traces yeah, and signs uh, there. And that spoil used to get everywhere, as you guys know. I, th- I think it's fair to say we were second to none at camouflage and concealment because if anyone could camouflage and conceal the Mexi and subsurface OPs and the trails between in only a few days and people would walk over it afterwards and would not see any sign, it was a skill. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And... Uh, I think we all became experts. So I remember VIPs coming out to, to visit the Mexi site and they'd be given a 10-figure grid reference. Yeah. They weren't told that we were subsurface. They were just told, right, there's a patrol of six guys here at this grid, 10-figure grid. Uh, I think it was down to one metre accuracy. And you could actually hear them. I'll come on to the listening de- device later. But you could actually hear the VIPs and uh, and their chaperones or all, all virtually on top of you saying oh we must have got the wrong grid there's nobody here so we we were we, we were very good at it i'll cool. move on to the sort of digging side of it if you like so we used to mine tape off the template if you like for the for the shape of the mexi which was a large t just to give you some idea of the size that the vertical part uh, so the T-shape, the vertical part of the T was the main body of the shelter and the horizontal part of the T was basically the entrance and the bomb blast area. So it was a massive T-shape. The main body was huge. I would say about five metres by three metres, five metres long, three metres wide. The top of the T was about a metre wide and then about five to six metres long. And the height of the shelter itself was over six foot. In then days with a massive mbc fret uh we used to try and try and get three foot of overhead cover in there so you're looking at a hole about 10 foot deep Easy. It, it was vast so the spore site was, was very important um and, and that was the the main thing was to determine where all where are you going to put all this spoil and then uh once you've sort of outlined and removed the top surface of the tea and then it was dig 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 <laughs> and it'd probably take uh, i think kev's already mentioned it you know, two days, sometimes a little bit longer, depending on the terrain. But to get two forward LPs in, the Mexi itself uh, was a, a good non-stop digging for two to three days quite easily. You could spend a good half day, if not more, on the camouflaging concealment part at the end. Oh, easy. And more, because 
because one of the jobs when I was in the Mexis, uh, between going to the OP, the pair that wasn't on stag, sometimes first light, last light, would do a cam check as well. Yeah. Reinvigorate the cam, go around. Uh, and I know on one of my exercises, we weren't using radios from the OP to the MXC. So we dug line in. Yeah. And we had to dig about 400 metres of line. And digging line in and camming it all oh. took a day. And it- Nightmare. And I've so, done it myself. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So take it in for a couple of days, which we've just discussed there. Obviously very, very difficult. You're absolutely knackered at this point. But, but then once you're in, life got a little bit easier. But Sammy, can you just cover the sort of the routine in the Mexis and the, the the sort of the relationship between the Mexi and the OP sites. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, as you said, it, in comparison, you know, you just spent two to three days digging. You, you're absolutely knackered. So actually, once you've got the shelter in, it was a nice rest, actually, you know, just to, to, to have, albeit cramped, but but it was no nowhere near as cramped as the forward OPs. But in the Mexi, it was quite quite a chilled out area. In comparison, that is. It was cramped. It was very smelly, certainly after a while. I mean, on some exercises, we'd, we'd spend two to three weeks in these things. So you can imagine the smell. Well, my wife likes a, my wife likes a candle, mate, as do most wives. And if I was to make a Mexi candle, oh. it would be a mixture of smells. It would be, first of all, urine mixed in with some steel farts, yeah. uh, a bit of calor gas from the cooker, the smell of old food cooking, the air was stale, um, you know, it was absolutely oh, well, ringing. And I always remember when you when you went out the hatch, how how fresh the fresh. air yeah. was it just and vice versa when you went back into it, it was like descending into <laughs> hell with a stink. Yeah, it was. I, I mentioned visitors before and they didn't tend to hang about. <laughs> once you'd invited them once you'd invited them inside and they sort of descended down the down the ladder. And all these smells which you've just described hit them. It's, it's a quick, oh, hello, chap. Right, I, I'm off now. <laughs> and actually, um, I, I'm sure that some of us used to go out of our way to make it smell a bit more just before they arrived. <laughs> so it was, it was very claustrophobic, um, I must say, but, but, but not as claustrophobic as a forward OP. The admin side of it, or the or the routine, depended really on the number of forward OPs. So if you had two forward OPs, you'd have uh, two guys on each of those and, and just two guys in the Mexi stagging on. The sleeping arrangements, two stretches, which basically ran along one side of the main body of the T. They, they were tied up to all the supporting metalwork by um, straps, and, and they were great, and they, they were quite comfy, actually, to sleep on. We had a... Air filtration unit in the in the corner there for a bit of MBC protection. They weren't very good, if I'm being honest. And what we used to do, and I think it was an SLP in the end, is that we'd have candles in the Mexi just to just in case you know there was lack of oxygen, and then the candles would go out. Um, and I think that happened actually. And I think uh, there, was, there was a couple of guys who. Um, who went down, you know, didn't have enough oxygen. Yeah, two, I remember two guys nearly died and it became that during peacetime you'd have to leave the hatch cracked a little bit, right. just yeah. let some air yeah. in. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And then you've got all the stores in there, so you've got your rations, you've got your water, you've got your toilet tucked away uh, in in the far end of, of the T, the opposite end to the entrance. Uh, that was just a, a stool, basically, 
uh, without the fabric of the stool and the toilet seat that clipped onto it uh, with a, a black bin bag underneath. And then, uh, yeah, your number twos were, were, were in a polythene bag, small polythene bags, which you, you dropped them into, tied them off, dropped them into another black bag. And as you guys know... Another quick continue. I, I, I can see you both smiling now because whenever you have a number two, you you always have to pee as well. So so we, <laughs> we had... Um, you used to sit on this stool <laughs> and then you'd have this uh, polythene tubing we use. I'm sure you guys use the same. And you used to pee into this polythene tube, uh, the other end going into this water jerry can. Again, being careful to make sure that it was the, um, the the urine can and not a water can, and then you'd pee away into that. So, yeah, it was, it was quite smelly down there. The stag system really depended on the number of OPs you had. Also depended on the route to and from the forward OPs. You don't want to end up with a motorway between the, the main hide and the forward OPs. So depending on the vegetation and the amount of signs uh, that you could potentially leave, that also dictated how long each of the two guys would spend in the forward OP. I'll mention EARS. I can't – yeah, it is yeah. an acronym, and I, I just can't for the life of me remember what it – I think it is external area remote sensor. You've made that up. <laughs> not, I'll tell you, somebody, I think somebody uh, on our, on our uh, Facebook page, Did somebody, they? one of the lads emailed Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, but for the listeners, it, it yeah. was actually um, a set of ears, you know, made out of plastic, but, but it was uh, the shape of two ears. So basically it was a headset. But instead of the earpieces, you had two ear-shaped um, listening devices, microphones, for want of a better term. And that was our listening device. And because they were shaped like ears, after getting used to them, you could actually tell which direction the sound was coming from. So you you position these up a tree, generally. They were hard-wired down into the Mexi shelter. So you had the coax to camouflage and conceal. And the best way we found for this was to split the bark of the tree. And we used to run the coax, tuck it away inside the bark, and then obviously dug in on the ground. And then the cable would then run through a small drain pipe. We used to have two or three of these, uh, one for the filtration unit, and then uh, two or maybe more, depending on the situation, for antennas, and one, obviously, for the ears. And they run through these drain pipes into the hide itself. But, um, yeah, they, they were a great bit of kit. Um, and I think I mentioned earlier, when you had visitors, you could actually hear them talking. Uh, and it was so amplified as well. You could hear branches being tread on when people were approaching. So uh, a, a great piece of kit. Uh, and I think as well, especially the OPs, very similar in that they were like... Um smaller versions of a Mexi for people who haven't done an OP before. You know, you had two guys in them going to the loo, going to the toilet was the same. You had to crap into cling film. Uh, that would then be going to a plastic bag and that would be wrapped up in a sandbag, pee into a small bottle. and But you couldn't eat hot food in there because you weren't allowed to cook. But um, you just cover a bit of stuff on the optics and that, how you observe the target from the OP. Side. Yeah, so along with the Mark 1 eyeball, of course, um, we had the normal general issue binos. We had what was called a swift scope, which was just a, a huge sort of telescope, for want of a better word, with, with a tripod on it. Very basic stuff back in the day. And I, I visited the battery recently, and, uh, yeah, they, they, they've got far, far better optics now. Uh, we used to have spyglass, which was a general issue piece of kit to all um all OPs. With thermal imager, that was wasn't thermal it? imager, yeah, which, which used um, air bottles. So, again, more weight and, and, and more equipment to carry. But that was about it back in the day. It was binos, telescope, spyglass, thermal imager, your um, night sight. Or, yeah. CWS. On your CWS, yeah. Yeah. It comes back, normally it comes back to the Mexi was by landline, preferably, um, for sick, but the uh, occasionally, if, if, you, if it was too far away or whatever, you might use a three four nine. But you try to avoid using a three four nine. 
and then the comms from the Mexi back to the command post would be by HF signal. That's right, yeah. Um, so else, just just wrapping up on that, Sammy, before we move on to the next part of the podcast, is there anything else you want to cover on the Mexis or the OPs? I can quickly cover hasty option OPs, if you like. Yeah, because during your recce, if you didn't have time to dig in, um, then you always, uh, and again, it was an SLP really, to um, to recce a hasty option OP. Basically, that was the thickest, deepest bush you could find, really. And the way we used to do it was, uh, as animals do, actually, used to tunnel into the bush, not on the ground, but on the surface. And you'd, you just one guy. Uh, would cut his way through into the bush using secateurs. So you'd cut the vegetation, you'd push it to one side, so you just left enough room for a body to, to, um, to you know, crawl into the bush. And I think the big thing on AC options and OPs is if you look into a bush from the outside, you don't see green generally when you're looking deep into the bush. You either see black or, or brown. So what we used to wear was either the MVC suits. We used to fold them inside out. So you've got the charcoal layer of the MVC suit outermost. And, you know, far better than having green kit on. Uh, Or some guys used to to have in their packs um, the black coveralls. And you used to just use black coveralls. So once you're inside, everything was black or brown. For shelter... We used to use uh, chicken wire. Chicken wire, especially very thin chicken wire, could be folded up to a sort of rectangular package which would fit under the top of your Bergen, and that would be covered in black essien. So you've got shelter under there. You've got a bit of a canopy. You've got uh, no protection at all, really, and you observe from the bush. And again, we've had some... Fantastic AC option OPs. And I've heard stories of people out walking, picking blackberries off a bush. And actually, the blackberries are, are sort of within a foot of the guy inside the bush and they never got compromised. But, I mean, an, an option of last resort, really, because though you had cover from view, you didn't have cover oh, not from fire. Um, and if you couldn't get below ground. Uh, so, as Kev mentioned in one of the last podcasts, it's not just enemy fire you're worried about, it's your own side dropping artillery around, around you as well as the other option. So, the hasty option was that. I mean, it was a, a, yeah. a very much um, last, last resort. resort so. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a great summary there, Sammy. Thanks. It's okay. Thanks. Thanks for covering that. I've got one point to make, Dave, because either Royal Engineer mentioned something to me on the last one. <laughs> uh, reference FRM. Oh, yeah. Flexible revetment material. Because obviously, Mexis. It must be true. Well, come from the engineers, because obviously, we we borrowed Mexis from the engineers. Anyway, and actually, I I think, sorry, just going on a bit, if that engineer is listening. (laughs) Yeah, I I think originally that they were designed not as we use them, as a massive T shape, but because it was a, a bit of a Meccano set. They were used for dug-in defensive GPMG positions, but the arch, yeah, and the yeah, but the the arch was above the surface. Yeah, where and, we, and hospitals, and hospitals. Well. Yeah, and we used to yeah. sink them. But yeah, good old engineers. So, colleague, we're going to cover the basic equipment, I think, as well, aren't we? Yeah, just before that, though, we just um, obviously we've touched a little bit on the exfiltration phase and. Uh, so you, you're in these uh, Mexi shells for three weeks, and then you're either overrun by the enemy forces or your time expired because your rations ran out or whatever. So, Sam, if you just briefly cover how the exfil, the exfiltration process went when you're trying to get back to your own lines, just sort of the routine and how that yeah. was run. Yeah, certainly. Basically, um, all, all the patrolling back was, was done during, during the night, non-daylight hours. So we used to harbour up during the day, We'd only move at night. During the day, you would then establish comms, and that could be on the reserve net using Morse. And we used to practice that quite regularly as well. So you'd either use your normal HF comms with the um, digital numbering system that we had. I won't say the name of it. 
but we used to either use normal comms, setting up dipoles, communicating back. We'd then uh, be given another grid because they've got the big picture um, and they, they would be able to direct us the safest way back to our onlines. So it was long tabs back, all done at night time. The first couple of days was the hardest, as you can imagine, because you've sort of been uh, sat, dormant, doing nothing but observing, cramped up in either a forward OP or or in the Mexi shelter. And that first couple of days is just a killer to get moving again. Bearing in mind you've not done much exercise at all for the last three weeks. So it was a bit of a challenge, but you soon got soon got into it. And that was it essentially. So you'd patrol back during the night, lay up during the day, again the next night, and that expel phase could could be a good sort of week or so or at least a few days uh, and it and we all knew that in reality that would be much much longer and it was quite amusing actually because when you receive your set of orders before you deployed for the exfiltration phase it was always these will follow <laughs> you were never given any yeah. any uh exfil orders at all so we was probably wiped off in reality i, I think the whole exfil thing was just a Bit of a cover for giving you a bit of hope. I don't think many of the patrols, and Kev touched on that in previous podcast, the chances of survival were, were pretty much... Uh, then there was no real discussion about how to do the passage of lines through to your own no. side. So the, the nearer you got to your own side, there was no passage of lines discussed. And chances are you'd end up with a blue on blue in your own side taking you on. Yeah, well. I, I, think, I think we was written off, to be honest. Oh, I think so, because you, you, you're going to try and go through... A front line where they're fighting each other and we were going to wander through. It was never yeah, going to happen. So that, that was it then. Just to, just a bit of a wrap-up then. We're just going to discuss a bit about patrol equipment that, that we carried. Uh, back in the 80s, it was all pretty basic. Um, and going back to when you were saying, Sammy, when we've been to the battery recently and we see the kit the lads have got now, it's, it's, it's fantastic with what the guys have, are in possession of. But back in our day, it was we were given quite a bit of leeway to wear what we wanted compared to a normal uh, regiment. So the guys wore their own boots. They tend to be jungle uh, combats. They wore jungle tops, jungle bottoms, and generally speaking, a, a windproof smock. No helmets. It was all woolly hats or jungle hats back then. Weapon systems. Back in our day, we're old enough now to remember the SC-80. Um, everybody carried a 9mm Browning pistol. And shortly before the S80 came in, uh, the lead scout carried a silenced SMG, which uh, probably the stopping power of a catapult. <laughs> um, and then Bergen and Belt Kit, you carried an awful lot of weight, radios and batteries. Everybody mm. carried a bug out bag, especially the Sigma and, and a day sack, so that if you got contacted, you could drop your main Bergen and just take away your day sack with some rations in it, some extra kit to, to carry. Um, and on top of all that, you still had your NBC search, your rations, first aid kit, a basic e kit and your belt kit as well. And you still had to haul with you all the optics, the passive night goggles that we used, very basic set of night binoculars to the uninitiated. Um, and they were just generally worn around the neck. You had a little head harness, but nobody ever used that. It was pretty useless. And then had, obviously the empty had binos. You had the spyglass with all the batteries and the air bottles. And generally speaking, not every day, but a couple of people had a CWS night sight as well, which uh, that was image intensifying. It used the the light from the night stars to produce a better image. So that that was it, really. Kev, do you want to add up anything else about patrol? No, I think I think I think we spoke about it right at the beginning that we adopted kit or borrowed kit from all the different corps and the regiments in, in the army and repurposed it. Mexi, for instance, we repurposed what the Mexi was and built our own shelter, and that became the way we did it. And I think as, a, as an organisation, we begged, still and borrowed equipment from everywhere to make it fit our role because there was no real specialist equipment as such. Because I think, you know, in the early 80s, there just wasn't specialist equipment available for anybody. So what we had to do was make, make do with what we got and make that fit the tactics as much as we can. But again, it goes back to the original podcast, we were reliant on the soldier and not the, the equipment around it to get the job done. Yeah, absolutely. I will mention one other thing, if I may, and that's the the batteries, the forearm batteries. Way down. 
Oh, the mic for the radio. But in later years, yeah. I, I, I remember them being replaced by the lithium batteries. The lithiums. a lot lighter. Yeah. But we also had the one-amp battery, if you remember, with the, with the Ang yeah. charger. I'd never, ever yeah. seen one of these before. But during when you were stagging on, you used to clip this Ang charger onto the one-amp battery, and you'd spend the entire stag just cranking this handle uh, to try and get some charge into it. And after about... Yeah, Bergen's weighed a, a, oh. a hell of a lot. Yeah, massive. Right then, we're coming to the end of the podcast as always. We'll finish off with Desert Island Dits. So over to you then, Sammy. Please tell me your favourite book, military book, film and luxury item. Okay, yeah, sure. I'm not a massive book reader. And actually, I haven't fully completed this one. I, I'm, I'm towards the end of it. And it's Battle Scars by Jason Fox. And Jason Fox is one of the guys on the TV series. Yeah, you you probably heard of him, both of you, ex-SBS guy. And basically the book, he, he describes the psychological effects of combat that can affect anyone. And it's a real eye on that. Uh, for me, and it highlights the need for individuals not to be afraid of seeking help if they need it. Gone all the gone all the days where you know these sort of issues were they were just brushed under the carpet. You know, people turn the blind eye to it. You know, bite the bullet. You know, suck it up. Uh, if you've got an issue, here's a yeah. tissue. That sort of attitude, and it's affecting more and more people. Everybody's different, but um, it does highlight that the need for you to keep an eye on the buddies you're operating with. And for the person's concern, if they do have any issues, then, you know, step up, open up to somebody. There's lots of help out there, uh, which is great to see. Uh, and mental health. And if it can happen to a guy, if it can happen to a guy who's been in the SBS and UKSF, it absolutely. can happen to anybody. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, uh, and mental health is... Um, you hear so much about it now, which, which is great. So, yeah, fascinating book. Some really good stories in there and how he's coped with it. So um, that's one I would recommend. Your film, film, Sammy? Favourite film of mine, this, Kev. Um, me and the family sit down every year to watch this, and it's always around Christmas time. Love, actually. No, I'm joking. Um <laughs> <laughs> You're not joking, though, I suspect, Sammy. <laughs> Come on, you've all watched it. No, in case I do end up on a desert island, it's got to be The Great Escape. I know it's a really old film, uh, but it does remind me of the skills that a special observer has been trained on, particularly in escape and evasion, along with leadership, teamwork, recognising that each individual can bring something to the party. They all have different skills. The ability to adapt and overcome Foraging, which we've all done on our numerous E&E exercises. Acquiring items, and, and, and I think the, the special old Peter was brilliant at acquiring stuff. <laughs> Improvisation and just ingenious use of the available materials uh, to get the job done. So that's my recommendation. And I'd be surprised if there's anybody who's not actually seen that film. And your luxury item? It's got to be the biggest cigar I could find for those special condor moments on the desert island. Well, any particular Any will do, Fergie. You know me. Okay. <laughs> You're not a connoisseur there. <laughs> and as always, Colin, we always have recommendations. So Yeah, we do, you. mate. So my one this week is a book called The Wasp John in the World by a guy called Apsley Cherry Garrard, who took part in Captain Scott's Antarctic Polar Expedition over the period 1910 and 1813, and that's the one where Scott died and, uh, you know, Captain Oates was nipping out and he may be some time. And he describes polar exploration as at once the cleanest and most isolated way of having a bad time that has been devised. You know, he probably hadn't done R2Y by that point. But as we all know, soldiering in the Arctic, like the jungle, requires self-discipline, the highest personal admin. And Garrard reflects this in a tale of pretty much self-inflicted torture. He wasn't a very well guy, and he was uh, nearly never got picked for it. But the highlight of the book is in Chapter 7, and it's called The Winter's Journey, and it's the, he discusses himself and two others pulling a sled of 800 pounds and spending five weeks in the dead of the Arctic winter, where it was dark all the time, in an attempt to get emperor penguin eggs. 
So it was a true tale of a small team in a heroic endeavour against the odds and pretty futile because we turned up at the British Museum with these eggs. Nobody wanted them. Nobody's interested and they nearly died and spent a miserable time getting them. And I think uh, we've all been in a few operations like that over there. Oh, every, every time, every time. So Kev, over to you for yours, mate. Yeah, I recommended a book called Undercover by Patrick Howarth, which was first published in 1980. And it's the history of the uh, Special Operations Executive and the various operational theatres that they um, deployed to during the Second World War and, and some of the volunteers and some of the training. And again, some of the basic equipment, everyone think they had super-duper equipment, but they didn't. Uh, they're very reliant on common sense, a great deal of luck, and their little bit of training. There's been a number of films done about the SOE, uh, about the males and the female agents that were... Um, operated uh, not only in France, but they operated in the Far East. They operated uh, in, the, in the Balkans as well. And there were some notable in, uh, individuals who served in the ranks, including the, the British actor, Anthony Quayle, for the younger members that probably won't remember him. Um, I Spencer, can remember him. Did, well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you can't. Uh, F. Spencer Chapman, who served in the Far East, and he published one of my favourite books, The Jungle is Neutral. And uh, one of the many, many female agents was Odette Sampson, who was awarded the GC, or the George Cross, and the MBE at the end of the Second World War when she was liberated from one of the concentration camps, having been caught in France as a SOE operator. Fascinating book about it. Again, at a time when the survival rate or the survivability of individuals was in question, but it was all at war and people were willing to take those risks not only to do that job, but the hierarchy had took the risk to deploy people, almost uh, you know, throwing them into enemy territory, and hoping they'll return and hoping they'll do some good stuff. Was she That's the one who died me. in the concentration camp? Or no, she she survived. Sanson survived, but there was a couple of other ladies that were there who did die. One being a, uh, an Indian princess. What was it? Um, Violet Sabo or something? Yeah, she died as well. Okay, fantastic. Okay. Um, before we finish then, I'd just like to draw everybody's attention to a veteran initiative called The Big Walk. Uh, Tim Richardson is an ex-gunner officer. I think most of Sammy and Kev yeah. probably know Tim from days uh, back in Five Ridge. And he's a founder of the Black Isle Group, which uh, runs a leadership development sorry, a leadership development and performance improvement business. It's quite hard to say that. So he's doing The Big Walk in 2021, and it'll recognise the contribution made by care staff, NHS workers, emergency services teams and ex-military volunteers, and it will fund life-changing community projects in the UK and overseas. And over the period 10th of May to the 1st of June, Tim will be walking unsupported over 400 miles, and he'll be joined on in individual stages by guests, including leaders, veterans, and some celebrities. So he's also going to get into the podcast business and create some podcasts during his trip. He'll also do some video interviews looking back on 2020 to identify successes and failures in leadership. I wonder if we're talking to Boris about uh, his great handling of the uh, coronavirus crisis. <laughs> um, he'll discuss the new world of work and how businesses created happier and healthier, more resilient working environments post-coronavirus. So Kev and I are going to join Tim for the Ben Nevis section of the walk, and we'll conduct a pod interview with him, probably in the downhill section, so we can actually be understood and we're not breathing out a backside. <laughs> and you can find out more and donate on Tim's webpage at www.thebigwalk.co.uk and all the details we've posted in the pod notes and on our social media. So once again, thanks to Sammy well. for coming on and being a listener and you the listener for your support and suggestions. Uh, please keep them coming in and our email social medias as ever are on the links at the bottom of the show notes. As ever again, you can find us all the usual suspects including Instagram and Facebook and YouTube uh, and if you've downloaded us from iTunes, we'd really appreciate a rating on that. You don't have to leave a review, just a, hopefully a five-star rating, as that's the best way of bringing attention to the series. On our next pod, we'll have our guest, Pete Walsh, and we're going to cover the International Long Range Reconnaissance Patrol School, prone to capture troops and resistance to derogation training, and finish up with a bit about Brixmas and Bell in the Cold War. So thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support through his company ISA. So that's it, and we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier.
Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.